This is the Mathematics Education Podcast from MathEdPodcast.com. to the Math Ed Podcast. My name is Sam Otten from the University of Missouri, and today I'm very pleased to have as a guest a senior scholar in our field who's been active for more than four decades in mathematics education. He's a professor emeritus at the University of Chicago and the longtime director of the University of Chicago School Mathematics Project. He served on the Mathematical Sciences Education Board of the National Research Council. He was on the Test Development Committee for NAEP, and he's a Lifetime Achievement Award winner from NCTM. I could go on, but I want to get started with our conversation. So this is Zal Usiskin. Zal, thanks so much for being here with us. Oh, you're welcome. Glad to be here. We're going to be talking across Zal's career as much as we can fit into one episode here, and I want to go back to the very beginning, Zal. So when was it that you decided to go into doctoral study and get an advanced degree in mathematics education? What spurred you on to make that decision? Oh, my. Well, I had wanted to be a teacher since eighth grade and a math teacher since high school, and I went to my state university, which was the University of Illinois, because mm-hmm. I'm a Chicagoan by birth, right. and I found out in my first math ed course as a freshman that the university was the hotbed of mathematics education reform in the country through UICSM, the University of Illinois Committee on School Mathematics. Mm. UICSM was the first of the new math projects in the United States, having started in 1951, and it was very influential in the United States and my university courses showed me that a school mathematics course could be developed in a way that was significantly different from current practice. Mm-hmm. And so that's really what spurred me to be, you know, to go on and, and uh, work for a doctorate, uh, sort of the, to emulate uh, UICSM to do what they were doing. Okay. Now, you ended up going to the University of Michigan, so what drew you there, and then what was it like to be at the University of Michigan in that era? Well... It was very nice. Uh, There was a a good uh, cadre of doctoral students, and I went to Michigan because I had learned that they were helpful if you wanted to study curriculum. They were into curriculum. There are other places for which curriculum was not something that they were particularly interested in, but Joe Payne, who was my uh, course advisor, uh, was a textbook author, and Art Coxford, who became my dissertation advisor and co-author, was um, very interested also in uh, curriculum. Oh, great. So that's going to be, I think, a running thread through this whole conversation. But you're not entirely in curriculum. You've been involved in teaching, like you mentioned. And one thing that really struck me looking at your history is that you continued teaching even after you got your faculty position at the University of Chicago for several years and actually you know, into this, through the 70s and 80s, you would still go and teach at least some courses in the high schools. So I was wondering what it was that led you to keep teaching while you were on faculty. And do you think that faculty members nowadays should try to do the same thing? Because it's kind of rare now, I think. Well, it was uh, rare then, too. (laughs) (laughs) Virtually unknown. Uh, I did it because my research involved developing standard math courses in innovative ways, ways that no one had ever tried. And there was no better way to do that than to go into a classroom from the first day of the school year with some idea as to how the course would proceed, but not with the course completely written. And you write what seemed to be good material for a couple of weeks' work at the beginning, and then you work to keep up the writing just to keep up with the students. 
Uh, this is what Art Coxford and I had done when we developed the course Geometry a Transformation Approach, and we learned so much from our teaching that there was no question of trying to teach whenever you could. And so I used this approach to develop a course to follow that geometry course. It, that course was called Advanced Algebra with Transformations and Applications, and that was uh, a few years later followed by an NSF-supported course uh, called uh, Algebra Through Applications with Probability and Statistics, and then even another geometry course with Sharon Sank that never become, became published, and all that was before UCSMP. Hmm. And so when we started UCSMP, also I went in, it was natural for me to go in and to write and teach uh, transition mathematics. That was the title of the first course. There's no substitute for teaching the students whom you're talking about. And the best way is to teach them from the beginning of the year until the end. Mm -hmm. Most professors just don't have the time to do that, nor, probably more importantly, are they given any credit for doing that. Mm -hmm. The University of Chicago understood that this teaching was integral to my research. Hmm. You mentioned the transformational ideas, and um, I noticed that very early on you were interested in transformational approaches to geometry, and you've maintained an interest all the way. I saw something you wrote even within the last few years that was still thinking about transformations. And there are still calls now with Common Core, for example, trying to increase the emphasis on transformations instead of such a static approach to the geometric objects. So I was wondering, what's your perspective on transformations now, and what would you say to the field, um, kind of like bringing this argument for transformations as an overarching concept? Well, you know, you said that there are still calls. I'm not sure that there were big calls uh, 40 years ago. It's almost, it's 50 years ago since I started my work with transformations, if you can believe it, of course. <laughs> I was obviously quite young. The Common Core Standards really is the first call in the United States for transformations to be used as a basis for the study uh, of congruence and similarity. I mean, there have been many places where they said, well, yeah, students should learn about transformations, but not so specifically as is in the Common Core. Um, I, I really like that movement, obviously. And that's a level of use greater than, let's say, just to use more frequently. You know, mm -hmm. you should do more work. Um, my feeling is that the field still doesn't understand the many advantages of, the, of an approach uh, in which congruence, similarity, and symmetry are defined in ways that apply to all figures, including graphs and drawings and even real-world objects. As an example um, that I can give you, it's still rare to find a later high school course, let's say a second-year algebra course, in which the graphs of y equal x squared and y equal x squared plus 5 are called congruent, even though one graph is mm. a translation image of the other. And it's rare to th recognize that all parabolas are similar. Mm -hmm. And the only thing that causes us to think that one parabola might be wider than another is that we're viewing the wider parabola relatively closer to its vertex mm -hmm. than we're viewing the narrow parabola. It's as if we are magnifying the narrow parabola. When we narrow magnify the narrow parabola, it looks wider mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. if we're magnified near the vertex. The applications of these broader views of geometry extend to the applications of scale models, photographs, prototypes, and maps in the world, and into calculus, into linear algebra and abstract algebra in the world of mathematics. So it's a powerful tool, both in pure and applied mathematics, and it has the advantage of being really intuitive. Mm -hmm. And Art Coxford loved the intuitive nature of transformations and the fact that kids could draw and construct and for me, the very first thing was not so much the applications, but the elegance of the approach and just how the mathematics just fits. 
and how you develop the congruence theorems like SAS and, and the similarity theorems, you know, angle, angle, how you can develop those very nicely through transformations. Hmm. I was just at a conference recently, and at lunch we were talking about similarity, and we were talking about how intuitive it is for students to be able to just visually recognize if two shapes are similar to one another. They can just kind of tell if the proportions are off a little bit or if it doesn't quite match up to be the same um, general kind of shape. And we talked about how that intuition probably comes from lots of experiences of walking toward and away from objects, and you just see how they continuously kind of change by zooming in and zooming out. And we do this with objects throughout our entire lives. And then if we can take that intuition and bring that over to mathematics and say, like, all right, let's think intuitively about what's happening with these similarity transformations. And then let's think about what's special with the, the congruence transformations. Then um, it seems like you have a really strong foundation where the mathematics is just a way of making sense of all those intuitive experiences. You're absolutely right. I mean, everybody can recognize when two photographs are of the same thing, even if the photographs are different sizes. Mm hmm. I think what is, what is not so much recognized is the hardest thing to figure out by viewing uh, whether they're similar is triangles. Triangles are just too simple. Mm -hmm. They look almost the same from any perspective. And in fact, you know, if you change your view on a triangle, it kind of looks like it changes shape. It's when you have a more complicated figure that it's easier to see whether mm -hmm. it's similar to another complicated figure. I mean, if it's not too intricate. Right. And, and you're absolutely right, by the way. I mean, this is an everyday experience for everyone, mm -hmm. seeing objects from different distances and the same object being bigger or smaller. Yeah. Whereas, like, saying, you know, get out your protractor and measure all these angles and then make sure you check the ratios of all these sides is, is not very intuitive. I think that becomes proceduralized pretty quickly. Like, make sure you take all of the side lengths and make sure you check all these proportions. To me, that doesn't build on the intuition in nearly the same way. It takes away the intuition. Mm -hmm. So we've mentioned a few times already um, UCSMP, and this actually was the textbook series that I grew up with in middle school and high school. But I was wondering if you could just tell us more about the beginning of UCSMP. So you mentioned some of the stuff that you were doing before UCSMP, but then how did UCSMP itself get started? Well, it began because of the efforts of Isaac Virzup of the mathematics department at the University of Chicago, and Keith McHenry of the Amico Corporation, who was a high executive there, and they agreed or worked to get a six-year, $6 million grant from the Amico Foundation, which is the arm of the corporation, it's the uh, contributory arm, to jumpstart a very large project to improve K-12 mathematics for the vast majority of students. It wasn't for gifted students, it was, it was meant right from the beginning to affect a lot of students. Mm -hmm. And we originally split the effort into four parts, an international resources component directed by Isaac Virzup that translated materials from other countries and held international conferences. We had a K-6 component um, that became the component that developed later everyday mathematics, a 712 component, which was my component, and an evaluation component to judge the two school components to do the research and testing. I had already been planning to write a course to proceed the algebra course that I had uh, been uh, granted through NSF, so it was logical for me to become the director of the 712 component. Mm -hmm. And even before the first money actually was available, I was in a school writing and teaching the first draft of what we call transition mathematics, because the course was a transition from an old curriculum to a new one, and a transition from arithmetic to both algebra and geometry. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of the beginning. 
So with that funding from Amico, this kind of preceded the NSF funding of all the curricula in the 90s that people might be familiar with. So what was your relationship working on UCSMP and then later all of these NSF-funded curricula that came you know, within the next few years? Well, when the NSF math curriculum projects of the 1990s were funded, uh, each year NSF held a conference bringing the projects together. And one of the highlights uh, of uh, the whole UCSMP uh, development was that uh, I was invited hmm. to the meetings of these NSF projects, even though the secondary component never had NSF funding. Mm-hmm. Meg Cousins was at that time the person at NSF who oversaw the efforts, the 13 or 15 or whatever it was, curricular projects that they funded. And I went up to her and I thanked her uh, for inviting me, even though I was not the recipient. I was the only person mm-hmm. invited who was not a recipient of an NSF grant. Mm-hmm. And her response would absolutely amazed me. Uh, she said, none of these projects would have existed without the success of UCSMP that convinced NSF that putting money into mathematics curriculum development could have impact. Mm. I had never known that, that that was one of the big factors. You know, They didn't want to put money into curriculum if they thought it would just wait, go wasted. Mm-hmm. As it turns out, it didn't go wasted. So I'm curious about that whole era and the people in that room. Like, What do you feel is the defining characteristic of those curriculum materials? I know like, I kind of have a sense of maybe what was some of the commonalities or some of the grand vision behind those materials, but being there in those meetings, what was it that kind of unified the group or were there real differences between the people at the group? Well, the thing that unified the group was the view that there were major problems in mathematics education Uh, as mathematics teaching in schools, and that uh, in many places in the country, perhaps in most places in the country, mathematics was taught as fairly dry. It was very much teacher-oriented, with very little student activity. It did not have many applications to the real world. You know, it was just uh, not one that was rather attractive to the students. And people had different ways of approaching things. No one tried to get a commonality. I think that was really important and quite different than today, uh, where you have this have common core. I mean, there was a lot of spirit in that room. Um, there were a lot of ideas, and the curricula that were devised were quite different. And we re- and we recognized that we're all in competition. Hmm. I mean, these curriculums, people were competitive. Hmm. NSF required that you have publishers, and you know you had competing publishers and competing series and so on. On the other hand. There was this commonality that we're trying to implement the NCTM standards. In that case, actually, UCSMP predated the standards, but we we had people on every standards committee who were involved with UCSMP. We had great influence on the NCTM standards. Hmm. So we felt very comfortable in this. uh, The only thing we didn't get in the secondary component was money. (laughs) (laughs) But everyday mathematics got money, so we couldn't couldn't complain. Mm So you mentioned seeing a lot of the problems with math curricula and math teaching at that time. Coming to today now, you have this perspective of several decades, but if I'm, if we're thinking about mathematics curriculum right now, where have we made progress, but then what do you still see as a big challenge? Well, I think we've made substantial progress in a couple of directions. One is the realization that kids have to be involved, that they can't just be passive learners. It still is the case in so many places that kids are passive learners, but the, and they've always been involved, let's say, in primary school, kindergarten, first grade, second grade. Teachers understand kids have to be involved. But after that, there are many places where kids were not. Now, it's, uh, let's say it's 
not as uh, common to have a classroom where the teacher just stands in front or the kids are just spent all day on uh, worksheets. Mm-hmm. The second thing that we've made progress is that the realization that mathematics at all school levels has to encompass relevant real-world applications. And a third is that statistics needs to be a part of every student's math education. Mm-hmm. And maybe even a fourth that every everyone can learn a significant amount of mathematics I think it's a little less chic to say that math is not for you than it used to be. Mm -hmm. A little bit less. It's still a major problem. Yeah. But we do have challenges in addition. You know, one challenge is to take into account the fact that smartphones and computers of all sizes carry with them technology can accomplish virtually all the arithmetic and algebra skills (laughs) on which we spend so much class time. Yeah. So the kid has, it's not a matter of, you got a calculator at home. You've got a calculator in your hand. Mm-hmm. And if I had to say something about the, the environment today, the biggest challenge is to somehow regenerate an atmosphere in which curriculum experimentation and change is possible. You know, since 2010, when the standards first came out, the Common Core standards, identified by grade level, repeatedly test students. They not only test students, but they evaluate materials based on how they adhere to the standards. Uh, this is tyranny to me. Hmm. But it does seem quite reasonable that if you have standards and you test on them, that you'll improve general performance. Like That I understand. But we have no evidence. What's interesting, there's no evidence that performance has improved. In fact, there's a little bit of evidence that performance has declined. And the same idea occurred in the United States in the 1970s when we had a movement called Back to Basics. Mm -hmm. It resulted in the lowest SAT mean scores and the lowest NAEP scores that we've ever seen. It was the problem-solving movement event in CTM in the 1980s and the standards movement of of 1980 and started in 1989 that really jump-started a lot of school districts into changing things that helped improve performance. Uh, But these advances are, are being eroded, I believe because we're now teaching a very narrow curriculum, a curriculum where you're not supposed to go ahead with your students because that's a violation of the standards. You know, if you're in the textbook creation field today, it's horrible. Hmm. You, you've got a, a people who are the textbook police and saying, oh no, you can't have that in your book because it's not, it doesn't follow the standards. It's that extra stuff. It's that moving away from just a day-to-day, this is what you do today and this is what you do tomorrow. It's That's what makes mathematics so great. Mm-hmm. And that's what makes teachers enjoy teaching. Um, so I think uh, we've got, that's our biggest problem. Curriculum development in the U.S. is now at a standstill where uh, 20 years ago we were the world leaders. Mm. It's a tragedy um, in an era of school mathematics because it, mathematics plays a broader role in our lives than ever before. Mm-hmm. And I think the curriculum is falling behind the needs of our students. I'm speaking with Zalu Siskin, who is the Glenn Gilbert National Leadership Award winner in the past from NCSM. He was on the board of directors for NCTM in the past. And you mentioned NAEP, the National Assessment of Educational Progress. So you also had some hands-on experience working with NAEP. So I was wondering, um, maybe if I could just have you say a little bit more, what message would you give to people who are very concerned with national scores in mathematics or who look at international comparisons and they're always checking the U.S. ranking um, on those international charts. What would you say to those folks? Well, I think national assessment has been a valuable barometer uh, because, for the most part, it's not tied to a particular curriculum. We now have 45 years of longitudinal data. And it's told us, essentially, since 2000, 
12, 13, that the Common Core and parallel movements in states that began then have not shown any improvement in what we consider to be important in the past. International comparisons are also really useful, but they're dangerous when the people interpreting them think that educational conditions are somewhat equivalent. Hmm. Um, I'll give an example if I can. Mm -hmm. In China, the highest performance in the country comes in Shanghai and in large eastern cities where mathematics is typically taught by specialists from first grade on. Mm -hmm. That is, these primary and elementary grade teachers teach only mathematics. Furthermore, teachers at all levels are highly valued, and there's competition to become teachers. And so these teachers tend to be the, the top students when they were in school. Compare that to the United States, where many of our primary school teachers teach at that level because they're afraid of the mathematics of fractions, <laughs> let alone algebra, geometry. Mm -hmm. And our teachers in all grades and in all subjects are undervalued. So also the case in all the countries of the Far East, a large majority of the students attend classes after school for hours each day and do this for years, often beginning in the early elementary grades. They're getting one and a half to two times the class time that our students get. Now, so we could get that kind of performance if we're willing to give that kind of acknowledgement to our teachers give that kind of salaries to our teachers to get the best people into teaching, to have math specialists in the elementary school so that kids are taught math by people who like math. If we were, are willing to do that and to have kids spend their time after school and in the evenings studying their academic courses again, that is taking actually classes outside of school, if we're willing to do that for the entire population, or let's say for 80% of the population, then we can get that kind of performance. But we're not willing to do that. We have really a broader range of goals for education uh, that in involve more than just the academic courses. We think that sports are important, We think, and, and they are. I mean, I, I think these kinds of activities, uh, political groups in schools, uh, extra stuff for your interest, if we're games and things like that, that's terrific. We think that an education is broader than just the academics. Mm -hmm. And I don't think we're willing to make those kinds of sacrifices. So it's more important in a way to compare us to the European performance than it is to uh, Far East. Mm-hmm. And then there, it's still dangerous to assume equivalence, right? Because they have, again, different teaching cultures in different European countries, too. Oh, yeah. Some some cultures, you have to choose what you're interested in when, when you're 14 or 15 years old, and you start taking two math courses uh, if you're interested in math or science. Mm. It's not the same as in the United States, where we like to delay the uh, the choice. And many students go to, half the students at least, go to college not knowing what they want to do and, and that's a strength of our system. Mm -hmm. And I might say our college system in general is as, as strong as any in the world. Mm -hmm. Now, speaking of college, you also developed a textbook for a teacher education course um, on secondary mathematics from an advanced perspective. And we actually used your textbook at Michigan State University when I taught there as a grad student. And we have a course now here at the University of Missouri for our uh, master's teachers, secondary math from an advanced perspective. But just thinking about a course like that what is your case for including that kind of course in teacher preparation or teacher education? And maybe you can just let us know what are some of the key kind of goals of that kind of course. Hmm. Well, our, our goal in that course was to point out that math education should be considered as a type of applied mathematics and not viewed as a fallback career for people who couldn't make it in mathematics. That book is a hard book. 
It's a real math course. And there's a special math that teachers need to know. It's not necessarily so simple, but it's not the same as the math needed to do research in pure mathematics. Mm -hmm. A knowledgeable high school math teacher, which I assume that's mostly the people who took that, should know the ins and outs of the content in a way that a research mathematician never has to consider. For instance, what's the significance of various assumptions about real numbers? What are the extensions of certain common geometry theorems? How can students develop intuition about answers to algebra problems before they start solving them. How and why do functions permeate the curriculum? What are different ways of approaching functions? All of those kinds of things uh, we try to put into this book. When teachers don't know these things, they're doomed to teach math as a bunch of relatively unrelated rules, and it makes them far more difficult for students both to understand and to appreciate the power and beauty of, of mathematics. That's, that's my view. Mm -hmm. And we're very pleased with the wide usage that book has gotten. Um, the four people who wrote that book uh, were four quite different authors, had quite different views of mathematics, quite different strengths. Uh, so it was really uh, fun to, for, I was sort of the overall, uh, it's one of the authors, but I was the one who tried to put the whole thing together and make it seem smooth. <laughs> and uh, we were all pretty pleased with it. And I can say just personally, it's always fun to read your work. Both your mathematical flow is very inviting and thought-provoking, and also your uh, writing on mathematics education is sometimes very provocative, always kind of exciting. Um, so it's really fun to read your stuff, I just have to admit. And if listeners are interested in reading some more of your stuff, there's an edited volume from NCTM called We Need Another Revolution, and this was put together by my colleagues Barbara and Bob Rees, um, but that's got kind of a nice sampling of your work from across your career. So that's one that people might pick up. But before I let you go, Zal, I do have a final question. Imagine that that whole career didn't exist and you did not work in mathematics education. Is there something else you could imagine yourself having done instead? Well, I've never questioned my decision to become a teacher of mathematics. Mm -hmm. But if math didn't exist or if, that, if I wasn't a teacher of mathematics, I might have become a musician. Hmm. I directed choirs through college and sang in choirs through graduate school. And I was certified to teach music as well as mathematics. In high school, as another possibility, I was surprised to receive some recognition for being an outstanding student of history. I never realized that my interest was out of the ordinary. But history has been an important component in my writing in mathematics education. And I have a serious hobby in the genealogy of my family. Hmm. And I like to tell stories, true stories about my family and about other people so maybe I could have become a professional storyteller. Actually, you might say that that's exactly what I've been throughout my career. I'm a storyteller to students about mathematics. Mm -hmm. And I think that might be why I like a lot of your math ed writing, too, because I think a lot of it, you are actually just telling a story about something in mathematics education, but it really reveals a point in a, in a way that really resonates. So, Zal, thanks again for being here. This was a real pleasure. Zal Yusiskin is a professor emeritus at the University of Chicago. Um, really great hearing from you as you reflect on your career and give us some things to think about ourselves. Well, thanks, uh, Sam, for uh, inviting me to be on your podcast. And uh, I hope that any listeners uh, had a, an enjoyable half hour.
Sam here again. I just wanted to let you know about our free giveaway of the MDisc Professional Development Curriculum, written by Beth Herbalizenman, Michelle Cirillo, Mike Steele, Kate Johnson, and myself. MDisc is a year-long PD experience that focuses on helping secondary math teachers cultivate productive and powerful discourse in their classrooms. It's available right now from Math Solutions, and I am happy to offer a free giveaway to podcast listeners. If you want to enter, send an email to me at ottensa at missouri.edu and put MDisc in the subject line. That's ottensa at missouri.edu. I'm pushing the deadline to February 23rd, so don't wait for your chance to win. After the 23rd, I will contact the winner by email. That's MDisc, Mathematics Discourse in Secondary Classrooms from Math Solutions.